Hi, I'm Devin Scott. I'm Will Ross. We are friends and independent filmmakers. I'm a cinematographer and colorist, and Will, he is an editor and sound designer. Yeah, today we've got film critic Ryan Swen here to talk with us about how King Hu developed his kinetic editing style throughout his career, from his Wuxia classic Dragon Inn to his epic-length ghost story, Legend of the Mountain. Welcome to Film Formally. All right, so today we are here talking to Ryan Swen, film critic and sometimes fan editor. Ryan did a fan edit for Black Hat, trying to restore the uh, director's cut using Blu-ray quality footage. But that's not why you're here today, is it, Ryan? Uh, no, I mean, I can talk about it if you'd like as well. But All right, so today's episode is now about Ryan's fan cut of Black Hat. Unfortunately, it's not. We could do an episode on that, actually. I I think we should do a fan cut episode sometime. That's close to my heart. Yeah, I think that would be a really good episode. Mm -hmm. But no, we're not here to talk about that. We're here to talk instead about King Who. But first of all, Ryan, how about you introduce yourself? Tell us a little about what you do and your interest in King Who. Sure. Well, I'm freelance film critic. I'm about to graduate with a media studies MA from USC. I'm not a filmmaker or like I haven't really made all that much but I have made some of my own short films and I have my own podcast Catalyst and Witness um, about the New York Film Festival I've, I've really loved this podcast so far and w- when you brought up this sort of concept I thought I was sort of thinking of what I might be interested in talking about and the one that the director that really came most fervently to mind for me is King Hu of all the directors that I've encountered in my film watching I think the one that most clearly demonstrates this sort of idea of technical perfection is maybe not quite the right term, but I think that just in terms of marshalling all of these different elements of film technique together, um, the the director that I think does that the best is King Hu. I think that he just has this way of melding all these different elements of his film style together to really reinforce the sort of core concept, core preoccupations, the thematic occupations that his films possess. And uh, I I chose editing simply because I felt it was maybe the most directly evident because of the the nature of his films. But I think that a lot of, I think they all work together in harmony. Hopefully we won't stray too far off course, but I think that he, he just represents this sort of idea of technical mastery that I thought would be really fun to talk about. Yeah, I've often seen King Hu's work referred to in terms of being polyphonic, Mm -hmm. meaning that he uh, uses a lot of different techniques and he uses them uh, fairly evidently. And not only does he use them sort of in in simple harmony with each other, but they're frequently in counterpoint with one another and they form all these separate voices that uh, add up to a whole that's greater than the sum of their parts. And their parts are pretty great on their own. Yes. But uh, yeah, so King Hu is probably best known for his martial arts films, which I think form, if not the bulk, then roughly at least half of his uh, filmography. Yeah, I think so. I think that it's certainly his most well-known films are his Wuxia films. I think 
well, come, come drink with me, Dragon Inn, Touch of Zen, all of those are wuxas and some of his other ones around that time period. I think that as he went along, I think that I, I think his last sort of stretch of films is less um, less focused on that part. But I think that they still have the same sort of elements in that. And I haven't seen all of them, but I've seen all of this period, basically the seventies, late sixties uh, to seventies period. Uh, Legend of the Mountain, uh, one of the two films we're kind of focusing on today, the other being Dragon Inn. Um, I, I've often heard it described as a wuxia film, um, even though I think that that's quite a simplification. Um, mm-hmm. Both times I've seen it now, I think I've been surprised twice while watching it because it, it starts as a kind of um, spiritually tinged fantasy and before plunging into horror. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, um, and, and yet it feels absolutely of a piece with something like A Touch of Zen. Um, it, it, it just feels like he swapped uh, some of the generic uh, signifiers for others. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, Legend of the Mountain I, I does not feel like a Wusha film to me at all. But it, I, it makes sense that it's of a piece with a Touch of Zen because I think he adapted both films from a collection of short stories. I think that you picking these two films as the focus is really smart dragon in which came towards the beginning of his career and was and probably is internationally his most famous and influential film and legend of the mountain which is a pretty decided end marker to a period where he just found commercial success solely through wusha although i don't know how commercially successful this or his following films were i know he had struggles (laughs) with not uh, especially i think dragon come drink with me and dragon in really were like the the peaks in terms of commercial success i think that touch of zen was still you know very well received i don't think it was that commercially successful but i could be wrong and then immediately after that i think like uh, like a lot of his other ones were made not necessarily on the cheap but certainly for lower budgets like this and the other film that was released this year from him raining in the mountain are both were both shot in south korea because of the because the temples that he wanted, like the the style was only like that was appropriate for the time period was only in South Korea. So that was sort of, sort of a co-production as well. So definitely like th- those two were the sort of peaks of his commercial success. And then afterwards he found increasing, increasingly abstruse uh, avenues, I guess you could say, but I think that that enhances in some ways their approaches to this material, which I think is a really, really marvelous. We're going to be talking about editing style in specifically Dragon Inn and Legend of the Mountain. Possibly, I, I think uh, the most notable thing about King Hu's editing style is how he uses editing to create a sense of kinetics or a sense of motion or momentum. We're talking about two types of kinetics here. Um, that of the action within the mise-en-scene and that of the action within the meta filmmaking formalism an example of a a piece of kinetic editing that enhances a pre-existing movement in the mise-en-scene would be for example uh, the ecstasy of gold scene in the good the bad and the ugly where you have tuco running in circles and the camera and edit follow him to maximize his movement you have kinetics both within the formalism and on screen working in tandem there another counterpoint where we have kinetic editing 
maximizing movement that doesn't exist in the mise-en-scene could be something like Abel Gantz's Napoleon, where you have mm. a lot of scenes wherein movement is created through, you know, literally one camera whipping. All you see is a motion blur. You cut to a face, whip, cut to another face. That implies movement, even though the actors aren't actually moving. Um, that's why I love that movie so much. A masterpiece. Oh. oh, yeah. It's, <laughs> it's one of my... Two or three favorite films ever. And I think King Who is particularly interesting in that um, a lot of his action scenes um, and a lot of his non-action scenes in Legend of the Mountain um, create a kinetic energy while having very little in the way of movement on screen. Um, oftentimes he'll, he'll use an edit combined with a couple of camera movements, often a zoom, often a whip pen, or even a dolly in or dolly out to impart the idea of movement where movement is not actually seen on screen. And that to me was kind of the first thing that jumped out on me on these rewatches. Right. So the first film we're going to talk about Dragon Inn came fairly early in King Who's career. It was the first movie he made after leaving Shaw brothers, which he worked at as an actor, set decorator, assistant director, and then for a few films as director. And, and he had, Amazing success with his last film there, Come Drink With Me, which was a Wisha film. And he got invited to make a film for this new upstart Taiwanese film production company that ended up being quite short-lived. And that film was Dragon Inn. Dragon Inn is a story about political intrigue where a valorous general is killed by this power-hungry eunuch head of these shadowy government special agent forces and the general's children are sent into exile then the evil eunuch head ends up sending people to kill those children and then these mostly non-government official affiliated heroic figures all try to rescue those two children of the slain general and are trying to find them first and are trying to obscure their own identities and are trying to outsmart the Eastern group, <laughs> which is what the uh, the bad guys are called. Yeah, the Eastern Depot. And there's all this crazy plotting stuff going on. At the same time, it's actually, I think, the way we receive the film is not generally as a political thriller, but just as a series of set pieces of people hiding truths from each other, suspense ramping up, and then them eventually fighting each other. Is that a fair characterization of Dragon Inn, do you think? Yeah, I think so. I mean, like, for me, it is the perfect action film. I think, I, I, can't, I can't think of any film that more succinctly captures what an action film can be or, or like, in, in this sort of pure form. And, and like, it, it's just, like, it feels so fleshed out. It, it's all about this sort of both the hiding of identities, of motives, of of these very subtle sort of power games, and then ultimately becomes this sort of Hoxian ensemble piece where both the heroes and the villains are very fleshed out. They feel very, these group dynamics feel very lived in and hard earned. And I think that it just captures all of those tendencies. I, I, yeah. I think it's it's one of the best examples I've ever seen of storytelling th through action. Mm -hmm. You know, it's a thing that everyone only started talking about when the new Mad Max came out. But, but I, I think it applies. <laughs> no one ever talked about this before. <laughs> no one was talking about this. No, um, 
but I think that applies equally, if not more, to this film, where um, the vast majority of character development is expressed through the actions the characters take, um, mm-hmm. and that's constantly abetted by the way in which they're framed and shot and the way those frames and shots are assembled. Mm-hmm. I think the plotting is not exactly tying into intricate political commentary on mm-hmm. King Who's part. I think mm-hmm. that's fair to say. The fact that the politics are somewhat obscured and that the plot is pretty intricate and hard to follow and yet not something that we need deeply <laughs> to understand, I think, moment to moment in order to resonate with what the film's doing is a part of this overriding motif of Dragon in of stagecraft and deceit mm-hmm. like apparently king who part of his inspiration for making the film was to show a shadowy government spy organization as bad people since he was disenchanted with the success of the james bond movies <laughs> but it has to be said that just about everybody in this movie is is deceiving is hiding something so you'll have people pretending to switch sides, actually switching sides, and then the person they switch sides to betrays them. You'll have people (laughs) faking attacks from their allies in order to try to turn them against each other. You have swords and umbrellas. And all of this, I think, ties into the film's editing style in that the editing style of this film is not hidden, I think, at all. Right. People who are sympathetic to Hollywood views of editing... People will say that editing, if it works, it should be invisible or you shouldn't be actively thinking about it. Uh, It's literally written into the uh, classical Hollywood realism rules. (laughs) (laughs) That's not the case in Dragon Inn. In Dragon Inn, you notice the edits and frequently, I think, you are deeply aware of what the edits are doing in terms of what they're hiding, what they're enhancing, what they're cheating, you know, like you're you're well aware that the arrows you just saw fired and the ones that you just saw a character mm. bat away in the next shot, their journey between the characters is being obscured by the edit. You're aware that the edit is allowing a character to teleport from tree to tree to tree suddenly yes. when there's just whip pans that obscure it. And I think all of this ties into the idea of the pleasure of stagecraft which i think Mm -hmm. connects to he had a great love for peking opera which Mm -hmm. has an immense focus on stagecraft and on allowing things on stage to serve as metaphors so in peking opera someone could be holding a baton on stage and that person holding that baton forward represented them riding a horse Mm. and Acknowledging that and taking pleasure in the intricacies of that stagecraft is part of the pleasure of Peking Opera. And similarly, I think it's something that we're meant to take pleasure in in King Who's films. And I think Dragon Inn is maybe the best example of that. I, I, th- I think like it's certainly the the sort of the p- purest example of that. Like I, I think it is his purest film. You know, in that in that sense that it completely distills everything that he's interested in and and putting it within this generic framework. And I think that you just, like what you said before about set pieces, like, I think that it's definitely true, And but it's not just the set pieces of, say, large-scale combat. I think there are only around two, two like real set pieces, though they are both like 20 minutes long. Um, but, uh, but certainly in the first half, you have all these 
set pieces that are created by these by both the characters' motivations. Like you have both the I think the two that I'm thinking of right now are when Shu Chen the the um the mysterious white robed itinerant or ro- rover basically when he first shows up at the Dragon Gate Inn where the soldiers are trying to figure out what his intentions are and they try to kill him with poison and you, and that's What's his deal <laughs> yes exactly uh, and so you have so you have that and then the other one I was thinking of is when the brother and sister are having dinner with all the soldiers and they try to poison them as well where and and then it eventually culminates in a sword being drawn that's created basically all through reaction all through the, the these characters piecing together different parts of the overarching narrative in that particular scene and then acting upon it and king whose films are because of how reliant they are on the editing and these reactions they are fundamentally about looking about the way that these characters look at and assess each other and you obviously that's especially prevalent in in dragon and king who definitely has his share like he definitely has a lot of close-ups but i think they're deployed very judiciously they're deployed right at this moment of realization or right at, as the the tension is in the scene reaches a breaking point and so you especially see that right after the sister receives the looks at the note and says it says that the the wine is poison it cuts immediately to this close up where there hadn't been one before it was pre- they were all previously in in long shot and so you have these moments like that that i think add up to this really well formed sense of what what who's editing is going for i find that that's the wine is poison scene a great example of um the a director um managing the hardest probably type of scene to shoot in my opinion, which is a table scene (laughs) um, exquisitely because the way that the coverage is edited together and especially screen space is used. um, I thought what was brilliant in that who kind of segments the table into protagonists on the right of the table and the protagonists are always occupying the right side of the screen space. Mm -hmm. Antagonists are always on the left side of the screen space. Even when that actually makes no sense for eye lines, it's still maintained um, so that even subconsciously, if you were to give everyone blank faces and no other way to tell people in that scene apart, the separation of screen space is letting our subconscious do that work. Um, and that I think that to me is one of the, I think best ways to use cinemascope to use cinemascope mm-hmm. as an aspect ratio, because what you said about close-ups, um, I always find interesting when we're dealing, especially with anamorphic lenses and cinemascope, um, it makes it very hard to frame close-ups. <laughs> Actually, the human face is not long. It's tall. King who uses that negative space as a means through which to let our eyes drift from one side of the screen to the other to essentially make a, a visually noisy scene. There's like 10 people at this table to give it form. I think that the scene would have been very different if you, if you had shot in four by three and the editing style of it would have had to have been different. So the way those two play into each other really fascinates me. For a director who, especially late in his later films, increasingly toyed with the idea of abstracting space, Dragon is such a great example of using editing techniques in a way that sculpts the space incredibly carefully and it can be pretty it can be this is something that can be really hard i think to to articulate and find concrete examples of within the edit it's easy to point out the two-layered graduated 
layout of the inn in general and how this is reminiscent of a stage, but it's a little harder to map out moment for moment how the edit helps us get understanding of that. You can point out his movement from close action to wide shots at particular moments in order to reorient us within the space. And that's a classical idea, but it's a little harder to get into more particular things like whether a character is seated on this part of the table facing left and the table is above the midpoint of the frame relative to the next cut to the, another table. <laughs> you know what I mean? Mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. It, it really does get that intricate to make this stuff work. And those two table scenes specifically are, are such great examples. And, and going back to what you're saying about eyelines, I think that something I know is, and obviously I reiterating again that I'm not by, by trade or, or by natural inclination of filmmakers. So I might be totally uh, who is <laughs> that's true. Uh, but it, that I, I feel like that most of the, if not all, it's, I think most of the, sort of I guess shot reverse shot it's it's not quite matching in terms of eyeline like what what characters are looking at versus what the next cut is it's often a little bit off what you would expect that shot to be but I think it sort of serves that particular function of just getting this other vantage point of getting the vantage point that who knows is best in order to capture the scene or to capture the sort of composition of five six people just all lined up in a in a line i think he has a profound trust in the the audience's sort of recognition of what the stakes are what the parameters are and he creates that and then uses that in order to get the more well-rounded view of the scene and and the of course his idea his sense of setting is incredibly important and and the the dragon is the most obvious example of that of course he went Back, he had that sort of in come true with me, and then he would also sort of use that same template for the fate of Lee Khan, which is also a very great film, where he like he lays out the sort of geography of the scene very early before other opposing forces enter. Like you have this long scene that I completely forgotten with the with the villains setting up shop in the inn before uh, before Shuchan arrives on the scene. So he has this space set up early so that he can toy with it, that he can alter it in order to serve the the tensions of the particular scene the best. Another great asset to how he allows these scenes to set up so gradually and meticulously with his edits is that they really play into who has an incredible utility (laughs) with uh, what Devin and I often call formal arcs. Mm. That is the formal techniques that are used at the beginning of the film are not identical to the formal techniques used at the end of the film. And the change between those two states is meaningful. So there's very little in the way of fast cutting or or disorienting edits towards the beginning of Dragon Inn. And then towards the end of Dragon Inn, you have this really chaotic, like seven, eight person fight scene where Mm -hmm. the camera is willfully dizzying and in fact one of the one of the motifs of the scene is that there's an asthmatic character who gets dizzy when people run around in circles behind him Mm, which mm -hmm. might not be medically accurate to the condition but it makes for a pretty (laughs) neat idea for a scene yeah um and i i think that it's it's definitely matched by the sort of whatever I, i think yeah he has he has a very great sense for exactly what particular application of these quick cuts are like which one's right for the scene and though he is sort of his cuts are relatively quick 
in general. I think that he knows exactly when to deploy like this volley of quick cuts, like just, just to cut between all these different characters' reactions in order to get this sense of what each character is pers- each character's perspective is on the action that just occurred. And I think that you do see, even though this isn't quite totally accurate to the sort of film-to-film progression of his films, it, it does definitely feel like the last 20 minutes or so of Dragon Inn are the the sort of, that's the foundational impulse behind Touch of Zen. And then Touch of Zen's last 30 minutes is basically the impulse that's behind Legend of the Mountain, like the entirety of it. So you do have this sort of sense of his development within the film that carries over to the next film in a, in a really interesting way, I think. Yeah. Even if you if you ever watch his like pre-Come Drink With Me films, even those develop into each other and into Come Drink With Me in really interesting ways. He's one of those artists who really does have a river of a body of work. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I want to, I want to mention too, that he's really, a, a, he's adept as we're saying at showing the correct things at the right time and revealing things. I think my favorite thing about King who's editing though, is what it hides from us or what it omits or what it elides. And the the most obvious example of this is how and it, and Dragon and is great for this is how it allows implausible action to take place and feel and appear continuous and almost plausible. So the big one is when a character is up in a tree and then the camera whip pans and during the whip mm-hmm. pan it cuts and suddenly the character is in a tree like thirty meters away and they've teleported. But there's subtler examples throughout the film where for one of my favorites is when one character opens a window to climb outside of the inn and onto the roof. And as they're beginning to open the window and lean their body towards the outside of the window, who cuts to the exterior where the character already has their hand outstretched towards the building and aside from probably being a cut to a, a stunt performer who mm-hmm. is actually climbing up onto the roof, it allows the movement of the character leaning towards the window and then reaching for the roof to feel far more continuous and feel far more elegant because it feels as though he's doing this quickly and easily and without effort. When in fact, if you saw the full range of the movement, there would probably be a lot more struggling to position on the ledge of the window and look a look you know crane your head out to the right spot Mm -hmm. it's a bit hard to describe in words but just 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 close your eyes and use your mind people and (laughs) don't worry we'll have video content playing over this right right (laughs) and sometimes those edits are obvious like the teleporting in the trees and sometimes and some of my favorites are the less obvious ones and Mm -hmm. part of the pleasure of whose films like a lot of action films but i think who is especially fun to work this out because he's so dexterous in the techniques he uses part of the fun of his films is figuring out how he creates an effect or an implausible or impossible motion that's hinted at somewhat throughout dragon in but as you said ryan the last half hour is where who really begins pushing that and and manipulating the space and and pushing beyond empiricism and the observable, which winds up tying, I think, really well into the spiritualism that characterizes a lot of his post-Dragon in work. Mm-hmm. Right. And of, of course, he 
before the age of say Wirefu, he he his primary one was like these hidden trampolines that he would either hide in in the edit or like just yeah. in the set. Um, I did not know that. I was wondering about yeah. those jumps. You, you see that a little bit in in Dragon, and it's definitely a lot more prevalent in Touch of Zen. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I, I, it's definitely noticeable in the in the forest fight in mm-hmm. Touch of Zen. Yes, There's a lot of that. Yeah. There's two things I want to highlight. One is in the last fight scene in uh in Dragon Inn, um there's this wonderful moment that I thought it feels like the blueprint for everything like every action filmmaker has done, especially someone like George Miller has done with like with zooms and push-ins. There's a scene where I forget the name of the lead antagonist, the eunuch, um punches right towards the camera. Then we cut to a shot of um, Chun Chi just standing there and the camera, nothing happens except the camera zooms into him. And then we cut to a reverse of said eunuch punching an over the shoulder shot, punching towards him and completing his action. So we have three shots which imply a full action, but we never actually see it. And I think because we don't see it, because we have that zoom, because we're made to viscerally feel it rather than have it prosaically described, it's a million times more powerful, that mm-hmm. single gesture. I, I think that kind of the conventional wisdom about, hey, something's better if you don't show it, I feel like that misses the point a lot of the time, where it, to me, in this case, it's not, it's not they're not even not showing it because it won't look good. They're not showing it because they're using the tools of cinema to better convey the feeling of something than just showing it would. And um, that's everywhere in, in this film. Um, I'm going to highlight the other thing later. Cause I realized it's from legend of the mountain. <laughs> <laughs> we might, it might be a good to transition to legend of the mountain right now. Then. Sure. Oh, cool. Except we cannot move away from a discussion of dragon Inn without pointing out that a character catches an arrow through a cup, oh, turns the cup yes. around with the arrow still half implanted in it slaps the back of the arrow through the cup and through the window into the heart of the assailant. And it's <laughs> one of the greatest things I've ever seen in my life. Every time I watch the movie, I think this, is this the best movie ever made when I yeah. see that moment? <laughs> you know, um, I was, I looked back at my original letterbox review from a couple of years back when I reviewed dragon in the entire review is just, I like it when the characters catch the arrows and I stand by that. That's, that's, yes. uh, I mean, yeah. And, and you get like, and like just the sort of jump cuts he uses to embed, like when characters like throw coins or something like that and they completely land, it's just these jump cuts. Uh, so that, Oh yeah. yeah. When he throws just, the, co- when he just tosses the coins and it cuts to a close up, and it doesn't even, it's not even like the coins land there suddenly. It's the coins just pop into existence one by yes. one. It's yes. I mean, just like going, it, like it just goes back to that sort of like. There's though it maybe it's not as tightly choreographed as say a La Carleong film or a Samuel Hong. Like it's it's just the the choreography, like the the pleasures that I find in King, King Hu is this sort of knowingness of that this is artificial in a certain sense that it's a choreographed like very much as a dance as this sort of fluid thing that that can also burst out into this flurry of abrupt abrupt cuts and like just like that sort of sense of him imba- inhabiting both of those ideas both of those sensations i think that you see that in in all of his work basically but i think it's especially prevalent here 
I actually think that the um, the Hong Kong School of Martial Arts, especially um, in the 80s and 70s, um, is a great contrast to this mm-hmm. because um, the entire guiding principle between how those action scenes are shot is keep it in a wide shot, show the entire a- action without cutting, and that'll land better, right? The, the, because the audience will know you did it for real um, and it'll be um, coherent. King Hu kind of flies in the face of that entirely. Because mm-hmm. he's he's all about connecting moments through formal gestures rather than conveying whole choreographed set pieces in in, in single takes. Yeah. And of course, this isn't. I, I don't want to impugn them at all. I think that they're also great. Ma- they're oh, also no. masters of their of, of their form. It's just like they're definitely going for different. Like they they might be going for similar philosophical things. I think that there's a lot in common between La Carleon and King Hu, but it's they're approaching it from different angles and. There's certainly room. Yeah. So Legend of the Mountain. Legend of the Mountain. Long movie. It's a ghost story. Yes, pretty it much is. so. <laughs> Where everyone is a ghost except Shu Chen. Yeah, everyone. <laughs> yeah, that, I didn't even think of that. It's, it's amazing. <laughs> yeah. Like the only person who's not a ghost is the most gullible guy in the world. I mean, yeah. I, like we, we could do another whole episode i've actually been thinking of doing like a video essay just on king who's actors and how he would like shuffle them around and like put them in different roles for each of his films but shutan is like one of my favorite favorite actor favorite screen presences oh he has such a great face yes oh my goodness he's very believably oblivious yeah so it's the he's this scholar who has failed these tests and is (laughs) having trouble finding work and begins just working as a copyist and he gets this request to come and copy a sutra in this remote mountain area and he makes the long journey out there and he meets the people there and then he gets too drunk one night and wakes up and this strange woman is claiming that he proposed to marry her the last night and that they had sex the last night and he goes oh uh, of course i will honorably speaking and then repeatedly he will try to do something and everyone will go and like, no, 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 don't do that. We've got this covered. And, he, and he'll always go like, okay. <laughs> yeah. And <laughs> it turns out that everyone around him is ghosts and people want the copied sutra for their own devices to use it to somehow manipulate the dead or the, the spirits of who are passed away or demons, um, however you want to phrase it. And he just has no idea. It's just the most ridiculous. Like he, he's so hapless. I've forgotten about that. Mm-hmm. How how completely hopeless Glee character is in this. <laughs> it's great. I love it. I love this movie. This yes. was actually my first time watching it. I love this movie. <laughs> yes, and I, yeah, I was, we, um, yeah, yeah. We should note that this one existed before in like a hundred minute so uh, version, but it was, it's now been restored to the original one hundred ninety two minute length. And I don't know if I would shorten it by any any no, I, I was utterly hypnotized by the slow scenes i mm-hmm. thought i thought the, the, the slower it got the more i was getting into the rhythms mm-hmm. um yeah i mean there's that there's that scene towards like end of the second hour when he goes on the walk with cloud mm-hmm. and um and it, it, it's probably what 10 minutes 15 minutes of just them like kind of walking through nature and i don't know like that's my favorite part of the whole movie yeah, I mean, uh, like a lot of this, like you do you see that sort of in the 
latter part of Dragon and definitely in much of A Touch of Zen, like where you have just King Hu's love of nature and of photographing nature, but that reaches its height here. Probably a good half of the film is just dedicated to scenes of characters walking through nature. Like the first 30 minutes certainly is just Shu Chen walking through nature, m making his journey to this this fortress that is ultimately re revealed to be abandoned and populated by ghosts. Uh, but it's just him making his way to it. And it's it's just very keyed into the particular rhythms of that. It's not it's not necessarily in the sort of Apichapon sort of uh, conception of photographing nature. Like the shots aren't all that long. Um, well, like they don't last all that long, and yet it doesn't feel doesn't feel too quick, doesn't feel too slow. It's just completely like that's the sort of kinetic uh, kinetic sense that that who occupies for most of the film. Some yeah, it's are, not yeah. it's not still mm -hmm. when he's doing these long scenes within right. nature. It's not they're not still scenes. They're the smash zooms in Dragon Inn are replaced with like very very long slow zooms. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely, and. The opening in particular also has, I haven't seen all of Who's films myself, but has is unusual for in any of the Who's films thing I've seen. I don't think I've ever seen him use that many dissolves, slow dissolves particularly, mm -hmm. in that short of a space. Dissolve just being when one image slowly transitions to another and you can see them superimposed against each other while it's happening. And he'll just be walking and then he'll slowly dissolve and he'll continue walking and it'll yes. slowly dissolve to the next moment. And sometimes it will dissolve and he hasn't actually walked that much further. Mm -hmm. What I liked about it was that it sets up this formal dichotomy that who uses throughout the film between the sort of natural present material world and the spirit world, which tends to be represented with more discordant hard cuts. And th this isn't none of this is dogmatic, like he'll use dissolves to have characters appear later on, <laughs> or he'll have hard cuts in very tranquil scenes. But it's it's conspicuous in the beginning of the film that he's walking through nature. He's walking through long physical distances. He's a completely regular dude who has to walk everywhere <laughs> and that who communicates that partly through the slowness of the edits. It's really neat. Yeah, absolutely. And it provides, like, it's definitely the film, his other film from this year, Rain in the Mountain, provides a very good contrast because that one is basically, like, a heist set in a Buddhist temple. Uh, it's probably the best way of, of categorizing it. And it's very, yeah. as, as good friend Sean Gilman said, it's very much, like, it's a very materials film, like, all... And like that one, even though it's not quite a wuxia, it definitely has a lot more hand-to-hand -hand sort of combat. And it's definitely much more about the sort of physical ramifications of these all these characters' different schemes and plotting. Whereas this one is much more sort of... It it, it emphasizes both aspects. And on, on one hand, it is very physical, just like seeing people move through landscapes through these very tactile sort of environments. And yet the way that he... Like these dissolves, especially, they sort of highlight the immateriality of this sort of strange, ghostly presence that that these landscapes have, both in both in terms of like the characters' experience, but also our experience, our sort of conception of time and space passing. It yeah, I, I think it it is very much about embodying that sort of concept. Yeah, and the film in general really 
explores that that thin space between our material day-to-day reality and oblivion mm-hmm. with dissolves and ghosts just past the one hour mark of the movie probably the most self-consciously arty part of the whole thing happens yes <laughs> oh is that the is that the uh sex scene a great sex scene we did we didn't mention this in our altman episode but the sex scene in the player is i think like the best sex scene i've ever seen and it was so awesome going from that scene to this sex scene where there's just all these cuts is extremely like borderline like oh this is a student film conception of how to do an artistic sex scene Mm -hmm. but partly thanks to his careful rhythm of the cuts and partly thanks to the fact that the photography is genuinely beautiful yes it really works and but i think the key to that whole scene working is that it's very calm It, it there's there's this gentle motion when they're on the swings there's these lovely cuts between the two of them on the on the swings and sometimes they're moving in counterpoint but either way they're on this pendulum with each other and then there's a couple of nice slow dissolves that are that are just making everything feel so harmonious and calm and 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 pleasant and then suddenly it cuts to the, <laughs> these spiders in a web and this like cackling the sound of this cackling mm-hmm. woman plays over these like quickly cut like there's jump cuts they'll quickly cut between one shot of a spider and another mm-hmm. and it, the scene what's great about the scene is that it has a sense of humor about itself number one like there's a moment where there's two tiny insects having sex on a leaf <laughs> which yes oh that was when i i realized i i yeah i feel like i picked up on the uh the self-awareness yes <laughs> yeah the, yeah the bee pollinating a flower must have been, filming that must have been like the greatest like catching the bugs doing that on camera must have been the greatest moment of King Who's career. <laughs> I can't imagine how great it would be to be in like a field with a camera making this movie and catch two bugs doing that with your like macro lens and just like freak out going, I can put that in the sex scene. <laughs> it's like if Terrence Malick did jokes. Everyone on the set is just looking at each other, not knowing if this is going to work. That's actually something, this is a sidebar, but I like the fact that he retains so much of his stock company when his films clearly are so weirdly structured and must have been filmed in such a weird way, like such a, like so much of his filming style would require him to put the camera in weird places for mm-hmm. how a movie is usually made. It's really cool that he commanded so much faith from mm-hmm. his stock company. But anyway, so the sex scene is just great. And I feel like (laughs) the sex scene is the moment where it goes from, you know, there's hints of a ghost story before that, but it's where the movie goes from, oh, this is a very, you know, uh, uh, not necessarily slow, but very methodical artistic film. And there's these hints of the supernatural and this guy's kind of gullible. And it's where it becomes a spectacle. It's where who gets back in touch with that uh, Wusha style spectacle and what's great about legend of the mountain in this respect and why i feel like it's not just a logical endpoint or a polarity against dragon Inn in its entirety is that legend of the mountain winds up being like a really spectacle heavy movie mm-hmm. from that point forward like there's all these crazy ghost effects and they're very 
they're they're really smart in how they use low budget means like smoke that's like just filmed in reverse mm-hmm. and like just colored smoke to suggest ghosts and like it just becomes so much fun watching king who do this and watching this extremely gullible dude who goes to a totally abandoned fortress and the people there are like yeah yeah everyone uh left <laughs> they decided that the war wasn't worth it and part of the treaty was they uh they left us to watch everything and he goes oh yeah sure sounds legit you know it's just it becomes such a fun film to watch Mm -hmm. after those insects are screwing each other and those spiders are cackling (laughs) such a great turning point and it's just entirely created in the edit where he just got these shots in nature and he put them together along with these like really beautifully uh lit night scenes of them not even having sex but just their naked bodies uh Mm -hmm. in contact with each other it's sensual and it's like genuinely entertaining and uh that is just such a cool line to be able to walk that is so rarely done outside of comedies mm-hmm. for that kind of self-conscious spectacle of form and and willingness to expose your form's limitations and and even foibles and it's the kind of more comic parts of how it's put together without taking anything away from the integrity of the film itself and it just takes such a dab hand at editing to pull it off. Anyway, that's just gushing, but it's so cool. No, I mean, I agree. And I think that it is very much, like, I think this is, I think his films, part partly because of, of, of course, their sense of the physical and their sense of the of physicality, I think they do have this erotic sense to them. And this is definitely the most, the most blunt about that uh, because of all of the, various entanglements romantic even even though it's maybe more one-sided with with cloud played by a very young sylvia chang uh and and shu chan like even though maybe that's more one-sided than the the than the love that that tu feng and and shu chan have it is definitely very much keyed into how the physical these physical bodies are also not physical like they are, they are also rendered immaterial and of course I, I don't think we mentioned that the whole thing might be just a dream like it it's, it's unclear as to whether it, it is or not um at the end i just adore how king who's able to inhabit all these different tones all these different moods and how they don't feel incompatible but they feel vital to sort of assembling this fully formed conception of this very strange world in which his his characters move in it's such a cool to melding of the thematic material and spiritual and existential questions of the movie with how he makes it like the fact that the editing is so good at getting across this idea of the tension between material and immaterial objects in space is such is just such a great fit for the fact that the film is fundamentally about a man who is uncertain about the existence of the spirit world and spirits. Yeah, I mean, like, like it, it is sort of a, a lot of the film feels very guided by by fate, and the like. Obviously, the the that shot of the of him um, walking on the rock that's looking out into the sea is a repeat of the first of the first shot in the film, like post post the opening credits, and I think that just. The way that, and I think you see this even in his, in Dragnet, for example, where it feels like new elements, new 
vital elements of the narrative just like drifts into the frame, like where like they're they're just introduced very suddenly. Like he first introduces the figure, like the the character, and then he'll give the proper context for for who they are and what their intentions are. Like he he builds his he builds it slowly, but it begins with that initial cut to a character to a, a cut to the the figure. My memory might be wrong, but I think that you see that is um, with basically all these characters, like the, the first shot of Tzu Feng, um, when they're having dinner together and they they say, oh, oh my my daughter's here and they look over and then she's just there. She's just standing there like by the by the doorway. It, it presents them in a, in a very particular way that gives them a sense of mystery, basically. That gives a sense that they were destined to be there at that exact moment. And I, I think that, yeah. This touches on... I was really wondering this the viewing of Dragon Inn, and I looked, tried to look up it up afterwards, and I couldn't find out. But I was really trying to figure out whether Dragon Inn, because Dragon Inn came out in 1967, yeah, and I was really struggling to figure out whether, as he was filming it, King Who would have already seen um, Sergio Leone's any of Sergio I was Leone's wondering dollars this. movies. You read my yeah. mind, and it's <laughs> it's, it's all a, I think it, about. I could not find like the release date for Hong Kong or, or Taiwan or anywhere that <laughs> King Who might have been at the time for a fistful of dollars. I know that it came out in the United States in 1966. I don't know. Mm-hmm. And, that, and, that, and I think it would have kind of, if King Who saw it at the same time that the U.S. release date happened, he wouldn't have seen it. But like he, maybe he got an advanced print or like maybe <laughs> it came out earlier in, in Hong Kong. Or, yeah. And because there's so many scenes where characters will appear in in all of his movies where they will appear and it is impossible that they would not have been seen or noticed <laughs> before in all the, of leon's movies or all of uh king who's movies both ah but i'm thinking <laughs> king who mm-hmm. uh like i like the camera will just pull back and there will be a character already standing there who mm-hmm. then like the character in the background will be shocked to see yeah. standing there <laughs> yeah they apparate they somehow snuck through desert yeah mm-hmm. and like he hides these characters in the edit and and that's why i completely guess what you're saying about how he'll present the figure before the context for the figure mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. he is so unwilling to present <laughs> that context in advance that yeah he will push the believability of space to its limit by hiding that character through the camera and through the cut. Mm-hmm. What do we all think of the action scenes in this, AKA drum battles? Yeah. I mean, they're, uh, <laughs> I think they're just, just as amazing as his, uh, as his sort of wuxia scenes. But I think that like, like the first, like the really, if, if not the centerpiece, but like the, like, perhaps the most significant one where the monk is trying to, I think he's trying to get the prayer beads and it is, and like that's none of the characters are really in the same space. And Tu Feng is just sitting there drumming, just like sweating profusely because of all this, <laughs> this exertion. Uh, but it, like, it's just created by the sort of her drumming and then his reaction, his sort of staggering reaction. Like, and of, and of course that's necessary when you don't have a, physical battle and you don't have a fist meeting a body or anything like that he really moves into the into that sort of hyperconnective like moving back and forth rapidly between two figures uh sense that characterizes his, his wuxia films the classic pitfall with anything supernatural with battles is that it's often impossible to tell who's winning mm-hmm. <laughs> and i was really struck by the ways king who um figured out 
um, how to establish things like dominance or exertion uh, through framing and especially his graphic contrasts. Mm -hmm. There's this scene where um, the monk is finally kind of having a face-to-face confrontation with Melody in his temple. There's a moment where he's about to win and King who conveys this by breaking the axis of action. Mm. So he's screen right facing left, you know, drumming away. And then we cut to melody back to him. He's screen left facing right drumming away. And, you know, this is a great example of him breaking a fundamental rule of screen continuity to establish the fact that he is, you know, boxed her in mm-hmm. metaphysically mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. is therefore in a position of dominance for that moment. And that's just one small, like, example of king who constantly breaking rules in little ways to um figure out how to give his action scenes arcs Mm -hmm. it also just shows such confidence that i mean there's there's some choreography involved in some scenes but during those drum battles in particular we're so used to action scenes like choreography has to be a part of how you communicate during those action scenes and like otherwise you cannot follow a flow of battle and the Part of the pleasure of action scenes is the chain of logic of how a character come goes from not winning to winning. Mm-hmm. And in Legend of the Mountain, uh, that 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 idea of that choreographed chain of logic is completely out the window. And I just love the pure confidence he has in his staging abilities to just show the characters drumming and create intensity through the soundtrack and create a sense of the flow of battle entirely through cuts in imagery yeah and, and it's it's like very much it's just pointed in the way that there that a character will drum and then the other character will suddenly stagger like there's a very clear relationship but because of the nature of it like it feels it also feels illogical like it, it just ha- it happens to to carry both of those meanings um, and of course like also in those scenes like especially in the later ones you have those like absolutely insane sort of like completely I don't know vertical like the like like the angle is like completely pointing pointing up ninety degrees like at at the characters like as they're like sort of either like they're as they're in the air either they're jumping or they're falling like you see that a little bit right. in, in this film obviously that's maybe more prevalent in touch of Zen but like where you just have like he's communicating that sort of almost impossibility of really capturing that movement that sort of superhuman supernatural sort of movements by just simply pointing the camera up and having the, the the actor like jump basically or like or jump off of a platform or something like that it's just like it's just this sort of movement that that it just happens so quickly that the that the human eye as represented by the camera can only just see it in this brief like half second shot yeah it's beyond our capacity for it. and his ability to not show us something and to have us not go, well, he didn't show us that, but to go like, wow, I that is beyond the comprehension of our mm-hmm. regular human eyes. Yeah, yeah. Like I've seen like those, I've seen some of those scenes like ten times or something, but I still can't tell like exactly what necessarily the full range of motion, like the full range, if you were just to see it from a long distance away, what the full range of motion is. But because of the way it's shot it doesn't really matter to me because it's being represented in this way that feels and is kinetic that just represents motion in a completely different way from any conventional understanding. I I think that's vital for his style. Often there's two things that I think we talk about when we talk about coherent action scenes, there's what prosaically happens, right? You know, Mm -hmm. a character jumps, jump again, 
they explode into a ball of smoke. That happens about 20 mm-hmm. times in this movie. Great. Yes. Um, and love those balls of smoke. <laughs> and two things are really happening there. One is what I just described. And the other is forward motion, right? The other is just the thrust of what the audience needs to take away from that activity. Mm-hmm. I feel like, um, we often, at least as a filmmaker, I often get tripped up in uh, on the wrong side of that, where it's like, okay, the audience needs to know exactly where the character is, but not necessarily. The audience needs to know what direction the character's going in, and it, more or less, in two words or less, what happens. And I feel like King Who is, is always always seems to know exactly how little information he should give his audience about what is happening and what the important lines of motion and geometry are, at least the overriding ones. Mm -hmm. I have no thesis with this. (laughs) I mean, that is in itself a sort of thesis. And like the, the, the great thing about King who is that it's his, his films both like have that sort of concrete sense of this is what, is trying to accomplish, but then again, like it, its permutations, the way that he deploys it are so multifaceted that you can't that like it's both expected and not expected. Like you, you, you sort of know that this is his general concept, but the way in which it's deployed is always unfixed. Like that that shot of the of of melody, like also like a basically um, ninety degree shot of her playing the drum and like her her hand moving down and and hitting and hitting the drum like as as it passes through the the, the sun a sunbeam and it's and like and he cuts that shot exactly once so he doesn't need to and holds it for well, like holds it for a fairly long time but it is like he doesn't need to use that sort of angle any anywhere else because that is a sort of decisive sort of moment and he he knows when to use these particular uh, these shots at this particular time I, yeah, I, I think that it's it's very much a malleable sort of form that that has each and every decision has its own intricacies. He's really in that sweet spot for artsy fartsy cinephiles. Isn't he? <laughs> he really is. Where you get you get you get the pleasure of going like, oh yeah, this guy's doing new stuff. This is intellectually stimulating and exciting, and you get spectacle, and you get coherent expression of the narrative as it's unfolding in all of his movies all at once <laughs> you get you get people throwing drums and them exploding into colored smoke i thought this might be the greatest movie of all time when i saw that <laughs> it's fabulous it actually might be my favorite of the three king who's i've seen it's <laughs> it's i mean yeah like i my favorite is touch of zen and like i think that on some it's like in that sort of category where on some days I think it's the greatest film ever made. Um, I, I, and I think that, but I think that all, like certainly that Dragon and uh, Legend of the Mountain hit this sort of sweet spot. Like they each dep- uh, represent something different about his, or they, like they all feel like King Who films, obviously, but they each represent something different about his sort of approach. Touches and I think maybe occupies both of those twin axes in a way that, uh, that makes me fall in love with it even more. But yeah, Legend of the Mountain is just, I think that it, it's safe to say that there's no film quite like it. No. And it is like one of my, I, th- I think it's his most beautifully shot film. Um, and there's stiff competition. I would definitely agree with that. And that's not a knock on an eye, the other two I've seen. No, it's it's just like, it just has this sort of, just all the, that nature, <laughs> all of those 
bright, all those bright hues that he's able to deploy throughout. One thing I want to mention in, in passing in terms of this being maybe his most beautifully shot film, and it helps certainly that it has, if not the best restoration, it certainly had the best materials to re- make a great restoration out of, mm. of all the major recent King Who restorations. Um, but one thing that really struck me about Legend of the Mountain is I was looking through it. I, I have a personal hobby of I'll go through like HD movies and go through the blu-rays and hunt for screen caps of them and put them on my computer's desktop rotation so i just have all these stills (laughs) from films and one of the criteria for picking a still for the desktop rotation is it has to work as a still image in its own right yeah and uh legend of the mountain is again like probably of of the of the king who films is definitely the slowest paced one i've seen the one that feels the closest to something still and yet, like, the, I was surprised, given how absolutely beautiful the movie is, that I didn't find that many shots to use from it. And mm-hmm. that's, not, that's not because the movie's not beautiful and because the movie never achieves a, 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 a tranquil sensibility, but because even in the quietest, slowest moments, he's so great at composing his images that he's still thinking about how the characters moving through the frame affects our overall reception of the composition and how that affects the balance of the shot and how the shots that come before and after will affect the way that we receive the composition of this new shot. Legend of the Mountain is such a great example of a director who never switches off his consideration of how something plays in the cut, of how something plays in motion, uh, he doesn't just film the action scenes with considerations given to how movement fills the space, which is when there that is most explicitly called for. He films everything with that in mind. And you can go through Legend of the Mountain and go through its slowest scenes and realize that the way the character moves through the shot is essential to the way he set it up. Like He loves having characters move and the camera move not just in this film, but in general, he loves having forests and having tons of horizontal motions to contrast those vertical trunks. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's really pretty. It's really pretty. Yeah. I like the pretty parts. I like how pretty it is. (laughs) My, my favorite sort of, I I chose not to uh, select a tetrazone simply because, you know, it's been talked about quite a bit. And, you know, as I said, sort of represents those twin impulses. But I think my favorite Boring. edit... <laughs> uh, it, it represents, like, uh, those sort of twin impulses. But uh, I think that my favorite edit in all of whose films, partially because, you know, like, I've read things about that specific edit, but is the one where, at, at towards the end of the final fight between uh, between the sort of commander and the abbots, where... You, it's basically it's an over the shoulder shot um, from from the abbot looking at the commander. Like he he starts to move and then it's suddenly a jump cut where he's like right in front of his face. Like it's the same camera angle, but he's just right in front of the face. And then like it, it seems like he's moved like twenty feet just in the span of a cut. And it's just this like it encapsulates all of those that sense of manipulating space, manipulating our perception of it where it seems like he's moved so fast that you can't, you can't see the movement in between. It's like not even a blur. It's just completely, it's completely gone. And the fact that the Abbott, 
you know, um, right, right child basically immediately reacts and just hits him, hits him on the head, just in, in that, in the span of that cut is just like that. That's everything about, it's like everything about who's cinema that I love, the sort of artificial nature of it, but also the, the kinetic impact that it has. Uh, yeah, it's, it represents everything about that. Those two seconds, yeah, feel like almost sound, image, themes, uh, uh, the way he approaches emotionalism and character development through all these things. If it really does feel like a thesis moment, that's the yes. one that that's the one that Boardwell wrote about, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. I think Kevin B. Lee also wrote about it. Um, yeah, the, yeah. It's, it's we'll put that in our show notes. Yes. Hey everyone, check out our show notes. <laughs> I'd love to do. Um, I would totally do another episode on King Who. Uh, oh to talk yeah. Talk about his yeah. cinemascope usage. Oh, um, yes. I, I think everything else I want to talk about tends to be about that because uh, <laughs> I'm a cinem- cinematographer and I can't deny it. Uh, <laughs> oh, can we? Uh, I was thinking of doing a f- like we were thinking we were always thinking of like miniseries to do, and I want to mm-hmm. do like one whole miniseries on uh, what was oh uh, about like issues between digital and celluloid cinematography um but now let's do a why is this in scope miniseries bring on <laughs> bring on people who are like oh scope's the best bring on other people who are like i only compose in one by one scope is stupid <laughs> i hate I, it when it's wide <laughs> i think yeah for me i'm sort of in the middle where i think that if it's by 16 a master, by nine well no right. i mean like no, <laughs> like, no if, if it's if it's a master you know cinematographer then or like master director it's like the, the greatest aspect ratio but if it's not then it's uh garbage yeah my honest like i i I rail on scope a lot but my honest opinion on scope is that it's a fine aspect ratio um but there are two things about it one is that i think it's that of all the common aspect ratios i mean there's more difficult ones like you try composing an eight to one and you know but um (laughs) like of all the common aspect ratios i think it's by far the hardest one to use well yeah um and the second thing is i think it's also by far the most overused yeah. like i see m- many more films that are like in scope and shouldn't be than like are in 16 by 9 shouldn't be um so and i tend to rail against trends more than i rail against things mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um and cinema scope is a trend that's been going on for a while and by a while <laughs> I means since 1953 Decades. or whatever yes. <laughs> um but, but um so i tend to be very harsh um but you know when someone like king king who uses it um oh man it's glorious mm-hmm, it's great mm-hmm. um i still i don't have an actual preference for ratios i think every aspect ratio can be used well um as well as any other. Um, mm-hmm. It just has to be, it really depends on the film and the director's way of seeing the world, probably. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, although I, I still think I'm, I'm a Leone partisan. Uh, I think Once Upon a Time in the West is still the best use of scope ever. Uh, you can put that on the quote. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's, we absolutely, this is too beautiful a potential segue for us not to do our next episode on scope. So. Oh, you sealed your own fate. Are you sure we haven't done too much cinematography? I mean, we just did zooms. Uh, <laughs> I guess, yeah. People love cinematography, though. Like when people think about film form, they're they'll be like, "You mean the camera?" So yeah, <laughs> yeah. People are going like, "Yeah, they did a sound episode in their first 100 episodes, so they got that covered." <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's do scope next. Let's bring on what's his name, uh, the guy we named Kelso Vision after. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, we're, we're not putting this, but Ryan, Castle Vision is a running gig we've had for literally a decade where one of our film school uh, uh, classmates 
composed the film for 1.85 to 1 uh-huh. and then during editing reframed the entire thing to 2.35 to 1 uh-huh. so in reference to Vittorio Storero having Storero vision where he reframed his films <laughs> to 2 to 1 we call it so vision um, when someone reframes to Cinemascope and post um, and you know what I still I, you know I ain't a conspiracy theorist but my conspiracy theory is still that the first Hunger Games movie was totally so visioned probably um, <laughs> yeah it has every earmark well there, there's moments when important plot information is cut off in the top and bottom it's insane anyway <laughs> i mean you do like i mean like almost as a rejoinder isn't the like, isn't catching fire like mostly in 1.5 but then once it goes into the hunger games it goes into imax or something i think it's the it's 235 and then it goes into oh IMAX. okay gotcha yeah but Hold on, let me check let me i'm gonna check but I believe, my, my I believe that one, copy. that one's a huge step up. Hold on, I'm putting the Blu-ray in the player. <laughs> they actually shot okay, it anamorphic. So therefore, <laughs> it could not have been Kelso Vision because that's a naturally cinematic Well, yeah, like, like it's, it's almost like a rejoinder to... to... Yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that's another, another data point in favor of my conspiracy theory is that the first Hunger Games shot spherical, not anamorphic. Oh my <laughs> God. What, what are we talking about? Yeah, you got it. You got now. You have to do a Hunger Games episode. I mean, that'd be interesting in it. I would sell like if you do like we literally. Yeah, you you fucked up, Devin, because I was like, hey, Devin, this means that we could do our next episode on Cinemascope. We're doing it right, and, now. and then the first, and then like now we absolutely have to do it on the Hunger Games. Like it's sort oh, of like no. like the sort of that's an interesting like to just just to see an example like the you know the Mike D'Angelo like scenic roots thing. Like he mostly did scenes that he loved, but he did a few that he. Like he hated or he didn't like. So like you know, like that's in, sort of interesting. I don't know if you want to necessarily do that for the podcast, but oh like yeah, that concept of bringing bad oh, objects. I just, I just realized this means we have to watch the Hunger Games again. <laughs> <laughs> no. Yeah, and it'll give me a good chance to break up my Blu-ray collection too. <laughs> I hope you're kidding. <laughs> Ryan, how can people find you on social media, online, whatever? All I have, let's see, my website is Taipei Mansions, where I post links to things I've written, have way too many lists, et cetera, et cetera. Um, yeah, I, I'm very happy with it's sort of my home. Um, I'm on Twitter at Swen underscore Ryan, uh, where I post many inane things and, and I don't know, oh, thoughts, so you, thoughts you have- on films. You have uh, you have two letterboxed accounts. Explain yourself. <laughs> okay, well, so okay, uh, I, it's good to have on the record. Uh, it's like I had the original one, but then I realized that I was following way too many people. I just I didn't want to just unfollow on mass, and and I also re- reasoned I had plenty of reviews that I thought were not good because they're from when I was starting originally starting out. So I decided to make a second one, but still keep the other one for you know just because there are a lot of people still following it. So, yeah, that's why, basically, for my own dumb cataloging reasons. Uh, so that's why I have two letterbox accounts uh, for no reason. Um, so Normally yeah. I would cut that, but I will honor your request to put it on the record. No, you don't have to. No, you don't. no, no, no. I want, no, I want that in. all in. That, okay, great. sure, sure. We finally uh, have it expl- the mystery of the world. <laughs> okay. <laughs> we, keep, we kept getting asked when we were, the people were like, oh, Ryan Swen, ask him about why he's got two letterbox accounts. <laughs> Uh, yeah, and I have my and I have my own podcast, Callous and Witness, where I discuss uh, with guests the films and format of the New York Film Festival. Uh, the episodes are extremely long, but because I talk about twenty films, 
more than 20 films per, per uh, episode. But, you know, there's lots of, there's lots of discussion of some, some great films, some canon films, like Tetris N was on there, some totally forgotten films. So it, it, has, a nice, it has a nice blend, I think, in each episode. So something for pretty much everyone who's interested. Yeah, it's in my feed. Ryan, thank you for joining us. Yeah, th yeah thank you for having a, a Yankee on, on your podcast. Oh, yeah, the first of <laughs> yeah. some. Yes, yeah. <laughs> from, from sweltering uh, Los Angeles. So thank you for having me. <laughs> Thanks for joining us today. Paige Smith is our associate producer. If you enjoyed today's podcast, give it a rate, a review, and subscribe to it and help people discover it. If you want to come on the show or if you have an idea for a topic, you can get in touch with us by email via filmformally at gmail.com or you can find us on social media, Twitter, Facebook at filmformally. We'd like to acknowledge that this podcast was recorded on the unceded territory of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh peoples. Next week, we're going to be talking about the use or misuse of the ultra-wide cinemascope aspect ratio in The Hunger Games. If you've got a question about that, feel free to send it our way and we'll see if we can get to it. We'll see you next Tuesday. <laughs>